Hey, Ray. Happy New Year, man. Hey, what's going on, Casey? How How's your New Year going so far? Not too shabby, buddy. How about you? Nice. You know, staying drunk. That's uh, that's what you do, right? You stay as drunk for as many days afterwards as you can. Look, everybody likes to start their new year, like start it right. You know, like, you know, get healthy. You're going to start on the first. Since it was on Monday and everybody had off, it was like, ah, fuck it. We'll just push that one more day. Yeah, one more day. One more day. It's not going to hurt. Yeah, ain't ain't, ain't going to happen. No. But yeah, I got a, uh, <clears throat> I just got actually today, a, uh, I think we talked about this once before on the podcast. I got my shot, my cortisone shot and my trigger finger. Oh yeah. We talked about that before. Yeah. So I got that mm-hmm. fucking fingers back in action. Working pretty good. What did you do for New Year's, bud? Anything? I ate some shrimp and drank a bunch of beer. Nice. So, yeah, that's uh, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Absolutely. You can do whatever you want, man. It's, it's have, the fucking New Year. What what'd you do there, Casey? Well, I didn't really do anything. We had some... Uh, what did we have? I don't remember even what we had for dinner, but uh, I watched Kill Tony on the 30th and 31st. There was a live stream from the HEB Center in Austin, Texas. If anybody doesn't know what Kill Tony is, it's the number one live podcast in the country. If anybody doesn't know what Kill Tony is, it's a podcast where people entering the building write their name on a piece of paper if they would like to be pulled from a bucket and get one minute of time to tell jokes and make tony hinchcliffe and his panel of guests laugh and then they interview the the person for like 10 or 15 minutes afterwards and uh it if you like listening to people get their dreams crushed (laughs) it's a fucking it's an awesome show I get I get enough of that on a daily basis <laughs> from your peers. Mm-hmm. Not from me, buddy. Not from you. Not from me. So this is just a very quick little uh, Happy New Year. We just wanted to say Happy New Year and thank you, everyone, for listening to our show and our podcast, uh, watching the YouTube, all that stuff. This is, uh, I put together a little best of show. It's about 45 minutes long. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's going to be a couple more of these in the future because there's just so much to go through. It's just, it's been, it's been a crazy year, man. We had a lot of great guests. The the page and channel has grown tremendously. Yeah. We've had a, a shit ton of guests this year. Like we've done it every week pretty consistently the whole year. And that's, that's crazy to just try and keep track of like uh like all the people we've talked to like people will always say like uh well who do you talk to <laughs> fuck who haven't we talked to like, i know people you me to list off the last two years of people we've talked to or you get get out of here go away yeah people ask me all the time and i, I always name the big ones of course mark singer tommy chong you know uh but there's just so many people that we've talked to it's it's amazing <laughs> It's been fun and having a good time. Yeah, man. I can't thank you enough for uh, jumping on board and being the, the co-host of this uh, train wreck we call Deluxe Edition. 
Hey, it, it's easy when the train goes by and you stick the arm out and I just grab it and I get pulled up like fucking boxcar <laughs> Willie and you're slim pickings and off we go. Hell yeah, man. Yeah, it's been a great ride, man. Here's to uh, here's the 2024, man. Yep. I, I hope it's even bigger and better. It will be, man. It will be. All right. Let's get into this show. So the the this is just a best of show. I didn't I put it all together. It's uh there's a lot of great clips here. There's no transitions. Like we we're not gonna tell you who it is. Just come check it out. It's uh some of my favorite uh parts of the show and some of Ray's favorite parts of the show. So come check it out. BYB Bare Knuckle returns January 18th to the Charles F. Dodge Center in Pembroke Pines, Florida for Brawl in the Pines 2. Featuring two world title fights, including the third and final match in the three-continent trilogy between Marco Martignac and Jerome Hatch. And the savage Cub Hawkins gets his first shot at gold when he takes on BKB's Daniel Laurel for the Police Gazette belt at 185 pounds. And the return of Backyard Original White Boy Renee Rodriguez, Jordan Fuentes, and more. Visit BYBTickets.com slash Pines for tickets and information. Today's podcast is brought to you by Bespoke Post. Bespoke Post is a monthly membership club delivering awesome boxes of top-shelf goods from under-the-radar brands and small businesses. Every month, Bespoke Post introduces their members to cool new products, such as outdoor gear, barware, home and kitchen goods, clothing, and even oysters, based on a preference quiz they fill out when signing up. Here's how it works. You'll get a box assigned to you at the start of each month based on your preferences, and before it's shipped, you'll get a preview of what's to come inside to decide if you like it. You can, one, keep it, two, swap it for a different box or offer, or three, skip the month entirely for absolutely no charge. You will only pay for what you want. The box lineup changes every month, so you will always have a chance to find something new you're really into. And there's always free shipping, easy returns, and no hassles ever. You can unbox something new every month in a club hundreds of thousands strong. To get 20% off of your monthly subscription to Bespoke Post, use code CaseyAndRay20 at checkout. That's code CaseyAndRay20 at checkout. Check it out. BespokePost.com and use code CaseyAndRay20 at checkout. CaseyAndRay20 at checkout. The Deluxe Edition Network, also known as The Den, is an incredible podcast network that offers a wide variety of entertaining and informative podcasts. With a lineup of shows covering various topics, such as interviews with a wide variety of guests, history, music, relationships, true crime, and so much more, The Den provides content that caters to a diverse range of interests. The hosts and guests on the Deluxe Edition Network demonstrate a deep passion and expertise in their respective fields making each episode on each show engaging and thought-provoking. The network fosters a sense of community by encouraging listeners to interact through live chats, social media, and forums, creating an inclusive environment for discussion and sharing opinions. With his commitment to high-quality production, the shows in the Deluxe Edition Network continue to captivate and entertain its ever-growing audience. 
Whether you're a podcast enthusiast or someone looking to explore new topics, The Den is a fantastic platform to dive into and uncover fascinating insights from experts in their fields. The Deluxe Edition Network is the home of independent awesomeness. To find all these great podcasts in one convenient location, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of Deluxe Edition. I am your host, Casey Shearer. Joining me, as always, Ray, the podcaster. The last podcaster on the left. The 10 cent beer night. The doctor of podcasting. Mr. Cleveland. Mr. Flamboyant. The man with the plan. The Randy West of podcasting. Cleveland's sexiest man. The best looking man in Cleveland. L. Ray Sexton. Welcome back, boys and girls of all ages, to another episode of the Deluxe Edition with Casey and Ray. What's going on, Casey? Uh, we're having a day over here, Ray. How about you? I'm having a hell of a good day over here. See, this was an easy one for me because if there's one thing I know, it's musicians and gimmicks in music. <laughs> and this guy had both of those going on today. Good dude. Love talking to him, too. Yeah, this was fun, man. Jason fucking V. Yeah, of the Jasons. And it was totally just a fucking dumb idea that I had and couldn't get rid of for like you know, five years. Yeah, well, when you got songs on that album, like uh, Shelly's Got Shit for Brains, which obviously is about the character from part three. Yeah. And then you got, uh, what is it? Mommy Got Beheaded by a Bimbo. Yeah. Like, I mean, these are great lyrics. <laughs> Yo, thanks. It's almost like, um, you know, I looked at the Friday the 13th universe and uh, one of the things that I thought was like really cool about that universe, at least the first six. After the first six, when I think New Line took over, it became something different. But the kids in those movies, you know, like are incredibly cool and relatable and they feel like they have lives outside of the movie. So in our genre, which, you know, in the beginning it was Ramon's core and still is to some degree, but like, you know, you got like, you take a band like Screeching Weasel or the Queers and they have songs like, you know, Cindy's on Methadone or, uh, you know, like songs like that. Right. So they, it's just a random person and they do this. It's all old school. You know, Ramon's did it too. Susie was a headbanger. Judy is a punk. And I was like, yo, very easily. Can we be Shelly's got shit for brains. You know, Tina's got telekinesis. So it just it just kind of made sense in the in the canon of Ramon's core that we write songs about like people outside of Jason. You know, a lot of it's from Jason's perspective, but I don't know, man, like that universe is very like fertile for writing about interesting and dumb characters, you know. And and we could 
a lot of our songs now aren't necessarily about Friday the 13th like they used to be. They're all tied in and connected in ways, but like you could write about that universe forever, man. Like, you know, Demons Got the Shits could be its own song, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as you guys progressed from that first record to the most recent stuff, like the Jarvis House and Blood in the Streets, yeah. uh, musically, you guys have gotten a lot better. <laughs> Thank you. We agree too. Yeah. yeah. But it definitely has like that 90s, like you talked about, uh, Screeching Weasel, the Queers, a little yeah. bit of Teenage Bottle Rocket sound to it now. For sure. Uh, yeah. How do you think you guys got to that place? Well, like, honestly, man, like, you're right. Like, musically, you know, we've gotten better. And that's because, like, I always said, there's two types of bands in the world. There's a band that will strategize their music for years and years and years and hone and perfect it and make sure everything sounds right, make sure they do everything the correct way. And then there's the Jasons. And the Jasons, we went, we suck real bad, but we got a cool idea and we got catchy songs. And it's like, I always felt like the the audience will forgive you for sucking in terms of not playing your instruments great, as long as you got something that's like a good hook or something that's interesting or cool. I mean, you know, that Ramones first record is magic. It's not fucking virtuoso shit though. So like we, you know, I had been playing guitar and singing for a long time. 3D had been playing bass and, you know, uh, uh, stuff for a little while, but we just allowed ourselves, you know, the uh, leeway to get better as we played and you know no without like a doubt there were probably three to four years where the jason sucked real fucking bad live our drummer you know he could play 16th notes but he couldn't play his fucking foot jason hell just couldn't fucking do it man and he had to learn through playing and uh you know by the time we put out get fucked which was like our uh master of puppets like we finally were like in the groove to where maybe just a little bit the sound was as cool as the gimmick, you know. And I think now, like, you know, I've learned a lot about playing and singing. So is 3D. We have two musicians with us uh, in the band now on uh, guitar and drums, Helen Hollywood, who are like legitimately great musicians. And like uh, for real, as soon as we got them, it leveled the band up too, you know. So like. We just allowed ourselves to suck in public. <laughs> it was like, whatever, man, it's it's punk rock. And, um, you know, so the songs got different, not because necessarily we were trying to play different, but we got better so we could do more. You know, now our our trajectory is we want to play something outside of what the Ramones are. We want to play a little bit more 80s heavy metal influenced. We want to play a little bit more, like you said, you know, Ramones versus Screeching Weasel, two very different things, especially when you listen to modern Screeching Weasel, because that's really high quality shit. And the Jarvis House, I appreciate, too, that you, you mentioned the Jarvis House. Man, that's a good seven inch that's never been like released on anything else. But I for my song on that one, I wanted it to sound like modern day Screeching Weasel, like, you know, first world manifesto Screeching Weasel. So, yeah, 100 percent. You're like exactly right. Yeah, yeah, I'm a big Screeching Weasel Queers fan. I mean, I have uh, the back of the Queers 7-inch for Surf Goddess tattooed on my chest, Little Island Cat. I, I mean, I'm huge into that stuff. I'm so I'm so glad you guys moved that direction. Yeah. Because, uh, like, Screeching Weasel is the same kind of band. They sucked when they started. They did, yeah. <laughs> and they got way better, too, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, know. Don't, I don't want Ben to punch me in the face or nothing for saying that, but. All right, Ray. Here's our interview with Zach Ward. 
getting stoned with Stacy Keach yeah. on, the, on the set of Titus. Yeah. So Stacy, when we were doing Titus, uh, Stacy was the only actor who was allowed to smoke in his in his makeup room in his in his room on on the stages. And uh, so I would sneak into his room to have a cigarette, and uh, he offered me a cigarette. And I said, "No, I have my own." He goes, "No, not like this. You don't." And um, so I took a hit on the Stacy Keach joint, like a dummy, and uh, we were shooting something called interstitials. And what that means is when when the show is doing really well, the network promotes it. So when you're watching TV on a Wednesday night and they're promoting the new show that they want you to watch. So you'll be watching, I don't know, Malcolm in the Middle or something. And the commercials, they'll the actors from Titus hosting the commercials like, hey, that was a great episode of Malcolm in the Middle. What's coming up next? So that you're constantly being doped with the other show so they're promoting their own commercial bandwidth and those are called interstitials so you do a bunch of these little sketches and uh, all the studio executives showed up and so i had smoked a little bit of this weed uh, and nearly immediately regretted it because it was just right to the brain and as you can tell i do not have big eyes to start off with and so they were the size of pinholes and bright red and i walked up to stacy keach on set and i was just feeling paranoid and really high uh totally inappropriate kids don't do you have to be of legal age listen to your parents this is just an actor being an idiot and i regret it but it's hilarious uh and i walk up to uh, stacy keach and i'm like Stacy, Stacy, do I look high? And he looks at me. Oh, yeah. um, and I'm like, well, why'd you give me that? He goes, son, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. And he just walks on the set. And uh, I'm trying my best not to lose my crap. And, uh, you know, it was that old famous line. Hey, Zach, you okay? Oh, the allergies. Mm. Allergies in here. Must be, must be spring. Winter, Zach. Oh, must be the, must be the air conditioning, you know, just having to push through it. But yeah, learn that lesson fast. Don't, don't get high when you're working. <laughs> now, have you, did you get high before that? Or were you just like, I got to get high. I have to smoke weed with Stacy Keach. It's Stacy Keach, man. Like, even though he played my dad and I was around all the time, it doesn't mean that you're not still, I mean, Ask anybody who worked with Elvis. I'm not saying Stacy Keach is Elvis, but I Elvis, legendary actor, great, human being, amazing uh, musician, and just an honor to be around the guy. So when he passes you a joint like it's nothing, you don't want to be not cool. <laughs> you want you want to like you, you know. I mean, he liked me, but I didn't want to. No, no, I'm preparing for my role. I must take it uh, serious. I didn't want to. <laughs> I, uh, what can I say? I screwed up. I screwed up. But yeah, good story out of it. The other side of that is, too, you don't want Stacy Keach telling the story that you refuse to smoke weed with him. There's that, right? I, I think he's too much of a gentleman to actually ever throw me underneath the, the nerd bus. I don't think he'd do that. But yeah, I, yeah, I don't want it to be the way he remembers me. I, yeah. Did you ever think, ever think, uh, how many years later? 29 years later? 40, bro. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. 
Yeah. Where did I get twenty nine from? Holy shit! I have no idea. Forty fucking years. Yeah, that's how that's how time works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can edit that out later, so you don't. No, leave that in. He looks like an idiot. That's fine. That's <laughs> uh, also, you had Ed Begley Jr. on there. Yep. Yeah. Did you work with Ed? Uh, Ed was on the the TV show Titus, and there's a clip. Uh, I've told the story before. So, uh, what is her? Uh, Frances Fisher, mom, and there's a, where she's taken Ed Begley Jr. hostage. And earlier in the show, um, we're talking about someone being quirky, like you know, shooting their mom. Is like no quirky is when you when you fart in church or something, you know. And so the scene happens later on in the episode, and uh, Francis Fisher uh, has one of these moments that happens to all actors, but not when you're not used to dealing with a 500 person plus live audience. Because I remember the first <laughs> pilot episode, I about crapped my pants, dude. Like I was just terrified. Chris Titus, very experienced with live audiences, didn't f- fluster him at all. Uh, Cynthia Watros from doing soap operas, just a champion. Stacy Keach is Stacy. David Shatra, just a you know par excellent professional. Me, uh, I was terrified. So <laughs> um, then, cut two years later, we're doing this episode of Francis Fisher, and she hits vapor lock, which means so she she stumbles a line, everything has to stop. I'm like, okay, we're gonna get into the. Sorry, sorry. So we cut, reset, going again. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. We go again. She she fucks up the line worse. And now everyone's like, it's okay. It's okay. But you can see in their eyes like, okay, you're a professional. Get your shit done, right? Like there's a subtext of shit. And she's like, ha, ha, ha. But you can see it's coming up in her eyes. Like she's getting nervous and she's getting in her head. And then it happens again. And now everybody's trying to be polite, but the audience is getting restless. They don't know that. And I can see in her eyes fear. Like they, she needs a break. Eh? So now we're doing the scene for the fourth time. And it gets to this line and she's starting to say her line and she's starting to stumble and she's looking over at me and she needs a lifesaver. She needs something to distract, to get it off of her so she can take a breath and reset herself. And I see it. So I throw myself on the grenade and I fart as loud as I can. And I mean, I, I almost busted an O-ring pushing that sucker out. And I fart and I go, I'm quirky. And... The audience loses their shit. And Ed Begley is tied to a chair. He looks at me and they're hopping away. And it is epic. And she looks at me and goes, right? And I feel like I've done a good thing. I'm a good person with what I use my, I I use my, my farts for good. And, uh, but, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. And a few years after the Titus show is ended, uh, I see that there's a bloopers and practical jokes episode on Fox. <laughs> and sure enough, they have me 
<laughs> Heartache. So not only was it in front of 500 plus people on a take that was never used, but now it's broadcast across the entire country. Uh, fuck my life, bro. You know, <laughs> like, what the hell? I, I was the hero for a second, and now I'm just some random farter. And Could you do your Peter Falk impression for us? Could I ask you something? That movie, The In-Laws. Okay, Alan Arkin was in the movie. He was wonderful. There was a guy that played a CIA thing or something. He was a total pain in the ass. What the hell was his name? What? Begley. That's the guy. Oh, I think he owed me $55. Unbelievable. That's, I love Peter so much. He was the greatest. He always used to give me a hard time. And I loved him for it. Thank you, Ed. Thank you. That was awesome, man. Hey, uh, you were on the love boat for two episodes as Judy's ex-husband, who's trying to win her back. And this is much farther along into your career than that first Columbo thing. Uh, By this point, did you kind of have a feel for how it all worked? And, you know, was it much more comfortable? It was. It was a lot more comfortable by then couple of interesting things. The, um, the love boat that I was in, as opposed to being filmed in the studio, we actually went to Europe and filmed that on a love boat on a big, what was then in those days, uh, considered a large luxury cruise liner. It was a, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, I had a great time and, uh, and everybody in the cast was wonderful. I met Trevor Howard, who I, had admired God, Jesus revered for all of his work for so long. And um, while we were at sea, Oh, okay. So we're, we're heading out of Portsmouth or, or, or yeah, I guess it was, or Southampton in England. We're going to sail through the, um, we're going to sail through the English channel uh, or around the tip of England through the English channel. And then, then we're going to cut through a, a uh, a canal into the Black Sea, and we're going to sail around the Black Sea. So first, there's the lifeboat drill uh, on board the boat. They say, "Okay, well, everybody, go to your assigned, put on your life vest, and go to your assigned boat, so you'll know where it is." And you know, everybody puts on their life vest. We're we're tied up at the dock. We haven't left yet, Southampton. And you go and you stand by your lifeboat. So you've got nine people, let's say, on your boat and nine people down to the next one and the next one, and the next one. And you can't help yourself. You, you stand there like this. You go like, OK, I got, I got life behind. You go like this. And then you go. You stand there and you go. And you look at the lifeboat down the way and you go. They'll never make it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you look down this way and you go. Yeah, they'll do okay. They'll do okay. You look at your own crew. You look at your own crew. You go, okay, okay, all right, okay. (laughs) I'll bet I'm not the only guy that felt that way. Take a good picture. Um, uh, I bet a lot of people wanted to be on your boat. <laughs> well, we almost needed it. Um, we were we were heading. I think we had just gone around the tip of England 
or just coming out of the English Channel, one or the other. And we got hit by a rogue wave. And uh, we got hit broadside. And uh, I was in the dining room at the time. And uh, when you're on those boats, that's where you always are, is in the <laughs> dining room. So, so um, I was sitting at the dining room, in the dining room. And suddenly, the entire dining room went like this. And the dining room is on an upper deck. And I was looking down across the dining room, through the windows, at the water of this gigantic liner that we were on. And then it righted itself. And then it went even higher up. And you're looking right down into the ocean. And then Jesus. it evened out and <laughs> we continued on. The love boat. <laughs> Uh -huh. Our, uh, we'd like to dive deep into uh, everyone's careers and all of that stuff, but yeah, uh, this being a last-minute uh, podcast and this being your first feature film that we're here to talk about, yeah, uh, it's it was very hard to find some info on you, so uh, you're going to have to help us out here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, w what would you guys like to know, like? Uh, uh, more about me or what? Yeah, let's talk about you, man. I know very little about you. You went to the New yeah. York Film School after graduating from medical school. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have uh, you had a short film that was on TV in Canada. But that's basically all I know about you. Okay. Well, I don't want to bore you guys too much. So let me be as quick as no, I no, can. Bore, bore us away, man. We, we love <laughs> well, we, we want to know about you. Cut me off anytime you want. Don't worry. <laughs> because I'm not one of these people that's in love with the sound of my own voice, but um, I'll just tell you this. Uh, so I'm from Canada. I grew up in Canada and I grew up in Nova Scotia, which in a little town in Nova Scotia. And uh, you know, I was the only kid. I was the only child in the family and I was the only Brown kid in that school. And then, uh, you know, I went to, I went to undergrad in Halifax and I went to medical school in Halifax and I, did, I used to practice ER in downtown Toronto. And when I started working in the ER, I said, you know what I want to do? I want to make movies. So I went down to NYU and they had a summer intensive program where you could go down there for seven days uh, every day. Like, I mean, it was the whole summer, but it was seven days a week. And it was like 13, 14 hours a day. You're making movies right in Washington Square Park. So I stayed in the dorm there and everything, cockroaches and all. My buddy and I went down. So that was a blast. And then uh, when I came back, I made my first short film in, in Toronto, and that did really well, like surprisingly well, you know, which I didn't expect, but it was kind of a wild film. And then I made another short film that was shown on uh, national TV in Canada in, in what's called the Women's Television Network, which would be like Lifetime down here. And then um, I came down here and I made, uh, you know, uh, you know, started making movies down here. And and just, uh, you know, I was with ICM, the agency ICM for a while, because I had a script that uh, got really, really great coverage, but they never made it. And I said, you know, fuck this. I, I got to do something. I'm going to make a movie. And so we just did it. And so um, I just started making movies and and we made Hypnotica. And that was the that's the one I think we're talking about. Damn. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hypnotica is great, man. Ran, I just watched it uh, this past week. Well, thank you. Thanks. Going to medical school, 
and then deciding to make movies, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a hefty price tag to, you know, do first. Yeah, well, look, uh, first of all, uh, you know, in Canada, a lot of your education is sponsored. So I didn't have to pay. I didn't have a huge debt. So that's one thing. But what happened is that what debt I did have, I started working to pay it off because I honestly thought before I went into medical school, I wanted to do like a philosophy degree or some shit like that, you know. And then I yeah. thought, OK, um, you know, uh, I, I got into I got accepted into medical school and and I went to the head of the metaphysics department at Dalhousie and, and and I just took a chance and his name was Professor Tompkins. And he's a classic, classic guy in, in philosophy. And he was sitting there at his desk smoking a pipe and his feet were up. And I said, sorry, excuse me, Professor Tompkins. I wonder if I can ask you a question. And he looked at me, he said, yeah, come on in. And, you know, I was like, what, how, how old was I? Like early 20s. I would have been like 23 or 24 at the time. And uh, so he said, sit down. And he said, what can I do for you? I said, well, look, I just got accepted into medical school, but I really want to study metaphysics and philosophy and, you know, all this and the meaning of life and all this shit. And so he's like, uh, he takes a second and he takes the pipe out of his mouth, puts his feet down, leans over the desk. And he says, are you crazy? Man, I got people graduating with PhDs that can't get a job. Go to medical school. So I said, oh, shit. OK, so I, so I went to medical school. And then, um, but halfway through medical school, I got the idea of making movies because uh, I knew somebody that was going to film school at Concordia and she was really cool. And I just really liked her. Uh, and, and I thought that's a pretty cool idea. And so then I started, you know, getting more and more thinking about that. And then once I started working, which is the point I was making is once I started working, you know, you start to get into this thing where you're paying off the debts, but you also get a lifestyle. And then because I didn't know how long I would practice medicine, but then I started practicing and then you kind of sucks you in and you just keep doing it. So that's what happened. Yeah. So they did well. And then I moved down here and then started making movies here. And then I got into this hypnotica and, and, uh, you know, bef before that uh, we shot a movie in my house for literally no money. Um, and that's, we're going to release that kind of re-release it. It's called dangerous masala. And I play the lead in that. And it's about a, an Indian man who uh, is uh, having his first year wedding anniversary to his arranged bride who came from India. And um, before all this, his parents and relatives and all the guests arrive, um, they have a little bit of a fight and it actually takes place out here, out, out in the back here. I don't know if you can see out there, but there's oh, a yeah. pool stuff. So he, she's putting up the stuff for the, for the, the, the party and he's so pissed off he goes out in a fit of rage he grabs her chokes her she tries to get away and he drowns her in that pool and then as as he finishes and realizes what he's done and he's totally freaked out that he's just killed his own wife on their first year anniversary even no less um the doorbell rings and there's people coming and so he drags her body inside and hides her in the garage and the guests all start arriving. And so he's trying to cover up the murder the whole night at the party and making excuses wow. for why his wife isn't there and shit. So, um, uh, I you thought, know, I thought you were going to pull a weekend at Bernie's there. Well, he's like, just <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like <laughs> I should have, he just walks through. She walks through quickly with him <laughs> holding her. That's why we should have done that scene in the movie, man. Where were you when we were writing it? <laughs> In regards to weird running communities, yeah, there are. Like, there are all kinds of. I started to the listeners, like, I'm like, 
as a hobby, I love running and, and it's like really a fun community. And at the moment, the running community is really like popping off. Like it's, it's bigger and more popular thing than it's ever been. And there's all these clubs and, 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 uh, running groups that have like popped up, but there's also like crazy challenges that are out there in the world. So I don't know if there's anything as goofy as hill hikers, but there are some challenges that I've done and I've also seen that are like crazy. And especially like down South, there are some of the craziest ones. There's this one called the Barkley marathons. That's in like, I think it's in Tennessee. Actually, the Barkley is a 20 mile loop. The creator of this like nightmare run, uh, gives the, he handpicks the racers he gives them the coordinates the day before. Like you don't really know what the loop is going to be. So you have to learn how to read a map. He doesn't tell you when it's going to start and you have to do the loop five times in order to complete it. The first time you have to do it one direction, the second time another direction and you reverse it. So it's constantly disjointing you or uh, confusing you and, 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 and messing up your uh, whole thing. And it's one of the most crazy things. There's a really great documentary about it on Netflix called the, I think the Barkley marathons it is. For hmm. me, I, I did one that this guy, David Goggins created, who's this like fitness nut called the four by four. And it was four miles every four hours for 48 hours. So you would like start at 8 a.m. And then like, oh, what would that be? Like 12, eight, 12 noon, you'd run or eight, nine, 10, 11. Yeah. So you just keep running. I can't, um, <laughs> but I did it for, I did it for two days and that was like the most stupid funny thing i've ever done in my life like on day two i was like just like like a shell of a man like running around the streets of la just like oh like what am i doing like on the verge of tears so yeah so the running community has like weird things i mean there's even more dude i mean i could talk about it forever i i, I crewed on this race i didn't run it but I crewed on this race that was is literally a relay race from the Santa Monica Pier to Las Vegas, and you um, like you. I was driving an RV, and people just it, however you want to get to Las Vegas, you can do it. And that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever helped out on. It was so brutal, like just the amount of running and to see the athleticism of some of these like really good runners. It was bonkers. It was like some people had been you know had run like. 30 miles and then they had to go off and run like a whole marathon <laughs> you know what I mean? it was just like the way it, all, it it worked out so in regards to hill hikers nothing that goofy but definitely some crazy <laughs> stupid challenges just as dumb as hill hikers so are there like uh whole pages or communities that just argue and talk about shoes for that type of stuff sure yeah i, I think like yeah there's you know, like the, the internet is totally like created that like yeah. platform, but yeah, like there's, um, the, the clearest one. And I don't know if they argue as opposed to probably think what's better for you, but there are, you could say there's like a, like a, a modern and a postmodern kind of type of shoe. <laughs> like there's like a, or like there's a primal one. Like some people like to run like a flat shoe that has no kind of rock to it. And then some people love a lot of cushion and a lot of rock. And, um, some people like to run barefoot. Some people like to run in like sandals. Some people think just like traditional new balances are way to go. It's really, you know, I don't know if it's an argument as much as like, it's just preference, but there are definitely like all different schools of thought on doing that thing for sure. 
So uh, for anyone who hasn't seen Hill Hikers, it can be found on uh, Vimeo, and it's with Anthony Carrigan and Reed Cox. Uh, Anthony Carrigan's from uh, the show Barry, if anyone hasn't. Uh, yeah, that was super. He was a really nice guy. I, I Yeah, he was. He, that was a treat to work with him. And I think, um, I think like Clint Eastwood's daughter's in the movie, too, or something like that. Really? I, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, there was like kind of a fun group of people there's a lot of actors in la who are working on it so yeah nice wow so how did you get from uh, we have i mean there's so much to cover but how how did you go from stunts to directing okay i started in 1973 the uh cbs a company called viacom called me and said they had a television pilot they were going to do called Evil Knievel. And that a young actor named Sam Elliott was going to play evil. And they needed someone that would jump 20 cars while they blew both the ramps up. Said so they checked around in Hollywood and there wasn't anybody who really wanted to do it all in one. They wanted to do it all in pieces. And because, you know, I had traveled the world doing that for the last couple of years up leading up to that, I, uh, it didn't sound that god awful. So I agree. <laughs> and I came to, uh, to Hollywood. And, I, you know, after, my, after that first show, I, uh, I quit being a daredevil and became a stuntman. And they're two very different terms as far as I'm concerned. You know? Yeah, I've heard you say that. And, and explain to, the, to everyone why, why that is. Well, as a daredevil, you know, we basically go out and pound our chest and declare that we're the greatest. And, and all that, you know, and, and make a big deal out of what we're doing. And as a stuntman, as far as I'm concerned, if I'm doubling you and you go on in on a press junket and you want to say you did all your stunts, more power to you. My job is to to please the studio, make you look good. And uh, if you want the credit, you can have it all. You know, it's a, a behind the scenes thing. As long as you're getting that check, right? Yeah. We, we we were actually talking about this before we we got on air with you. And I was like, all right, there's a check for if I do the stunts and I say I did the stunt. And then there's a separate check I'm going to ask a number for if you want the credit for the, the stunt. Did they actually kick up the pay if they want to take the credit? No, it's all the same. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get paid for doing my job. And then there's a... Basically, our, our, most of our con- most of the time, as a stuntman, our contracts we come in on on actor scale, just as if we were a day player actor or a guest on the show, and then we get a stunt adjustment based on how difficult, death-defying, or whatever our stunt might be. Uh, sometimes. Um, I would get paid a great amount of money just for riding wheelies. Now that's not death defying, but um, I've had to ride wheelies on a Harley with a guy laying over the front handlebars of my bike. <laughs> that's not very easy, you know. Yeah. So, so I can pretty much ask what I want. Huh, there nice. you go. In that particular one, I was dressed as a girl. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's actually that's actually on my my list here of one of the. One, so since you mentioned it. Uh, you took a lot of shit for dressing as women dur- during a lot of stunts, right? Yes, and that's only half of it, because 
two of the women I doubled were black. So oh. I had everybody upset. And now there's, there's some really great black stuntmen motorcycle riders. But then there wasn't. And uh, one of the shows that came and shut it down, and um, Richard Washington, who's a good all-around stuntman, and he rides a bike well, showed up there, and I'm about to jump a motorcycle off a cliff out into the water. He, I went, fine, you do the damn thing. <laughs> you know? um, to be fair, we had a black stunt guy that we brought in who was doubling the girl, and I was in a Ku Klux Klan outfit with four other or five other guys, and, and Jason through the whole movie. And then when it came time to do some of the tricks or she had to look really good, he and I would swap places. We put the Ku Klux Klan outfit on the black guy and they would darken <laughs> me down. And, and it seemed fair. Everybody's getting paid. Yeah, sure. And the, the object is to get the job done. So. Um, Absolutely. Anyway, so that was my, that was my first day in the business or my first uh, movie was Evil Knievel. Some of the stuff that you do is is mind blowing. Um, tell us tell us some of the tools that that you're using. Well, I, I want to digress just a little bit. The other the other part of my interest in stone carving is this material, uh, bluestone, which is what we have here in the Catskill Mountains, is a a um, relatively young age in geological terms. It's only three hundred and sixty million years old, and the <laughs> The, the scratches that we make in it has the potential to last thousands of years outdoors with no maintenance. Uh, long after everything I've touched has been forgotten about, these objects may still be around. I, I'm, I'm, that just blows me away. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a, a big part of my interest. The other thing is um, we, we respond to what I call the presence of a material. For example, uh, plastic, you know, has a cheap man-made uh, presence. Um, glass is a little more substantial, but it's still man-made. Um, but everyone, you know, you see a, an unusual stone on the path or on the beach, you pick it up to look at it. We respond to that. And it's because of the age and the the way this material was created, we're talking about hundreds of millions of years of, of mammoth pressure and heat to form these stones, granite and limestone and bluestone and marble. And I think that's what we respond to. That's a diamond or an emerald. You know, these things are created deep in the earth under this ungodly pressure and heat. Over millions and millions of years, so that's that's I think why why I respond to stone. Yeah. I'm sorry, I forgot your question. <laughs> oh, the, no, that's all right. That's awesome. I love the I love how like you you can definitely tell how passionate you are about yeah. about the the field. Thank you. Uh, I was because awesome you're all self you're you know you're self taught as well. Yeah. Well, I was just gonna say it almost sounds like it's sacrilegious to carve it. Yeah, yeah, I, I I hear what you're saying. Um, you know, well, uh, but but don't get me wrong. I would, you know, I'm all for carving it. But there's a moment where you look at it and go, "Should I do this?" Well, 
when you're working in stone, you have to, it is a little bit of a dialogue. You have to be sensitive to the stone. For example, I don't, I can't remember if there's any uh, overhead shots of the rip in the, the website, but if you were to stand over the rip and look down on him, he is uh, closer to the back of the block rather than in the center of it. And the mm-hmm. reason for that is we roughed it out with a huge the kind of a, a 90 pound drill that you see them breaking up the pavement with. <laughs> um, and right where the head was going to be, there was a softball sized lump of clay, uh, which uh, bluestone being a sedimentary stone, you find stuff in it, fossils, uh, bits of clay, you know. So we had to move the whole figure back into the stone by about eight or 10 inches to get <laughs> past that deposit of clay there. <laughs> so you have to, you have to listen to the stone. It's um, a good example is, um, so after we moved up to the top, um, I would always try to go as early as possible because the lifts wouldn't open till I think nine or 10. So if I got there at seven, uh, I would have a couple of hours undisturbed before people started coming up. And uh, so one day I'm there and it's fairly early in this re- This guy's really plastered already. And I'm sitting there with uh, a book and two files and all my papers and a tape measure and a pencil. And I'm just looking at the stone, you know, trying to figure out, what the hell was I thinking, you know? And he comes down the path and says, ah, taking a break, huh? <laughs> but in fact, no, the actual material removal with a jackhammer and a carbide tip chisel is, is fairly rudimentary. It's uh, technology from the 1890s. The trick is to know which material to remove and which <laughs> to leave. Yeah. Um, going back to what Ray said about the, um, you know, almost, I forget the wording that he used uh, about sacrilegious, not, yeah. sacrilegious yeah. about not cutting. Has there ever been a something that you've found and we're like, this is, this is too good to, to cut like this? Yeah. Often that will, um, for example, uh, uh, if I'm doing a relief piece, for example, that's a one side of a stone. And often I will feature the good side not to be carved. So the sculpture, the the intrusion, my intrusion into the stone is on the the, the B side. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Very cool. <laughs>